You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on July 14th, 2019. A reading from the Gospel of Luke. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion." He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So have you ever met someone who was born not on February 28th, but on February 29th? Some of you have? It's kind of a sad thing for that person because they only get to have a birthday once every four years on the leap year. All the other years, I mean, I suppose if if you're the kind of person who wants to stay young, you can stay young a lot longer if you only have a birthday once every four years. So that's a good thing. Uh, But this is a special day for our church because whereas some churches, like St. Peter's Church or St. Martin's Church or St. Luke's Church, they have a feast day that remembers their saint every year, our story, the story of the Good Samaritan, only comes up in year C of the lectionary when we study the Gospel of Luke, which is this year. And so we only get to have our Good Samaritan Feast Day once every three years, and this is the day. So I want you all to make sure you eat an extra donut or something when you go across the way to coffee hour, because we got to celebrate. This is, this is big stuff for us. So what's this story all about? This story comes in the context of an argument or a discussion between Jesus and a young lawyer. And this lawyer comes to Jesus, and one thing that that people in Jesus' day liked to do, especially lawyer-type people or Pharisees, they liked to argue about the law. And when we say the law in Bible terms, we're talking about the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch. Those are the, the books that are called the law. And they contain in them all of the commandments that the people were supposed to keep. 613 of them, if you're counting. And they were. 
But they were very concerned to know what was within the boundaries of the law and what was outside the boundaries of the law. Exactly what was I obligated to and what felt, fell outside of my obligation. And so one of the questions, one of the debates was, which is the greatest commandment? And we've heard in other gospels, people ask Jesus this question before. And Jesus gives the same answer that this lawyer gave in the gospel today. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. These are the, the two greatest commandments. And so people would debate about which are the two greatest commandments. These are clearly the two greatest commandments. But this lawyer has a follow-up question. But before he asks this question, this is what Luke says about him. He says, this man, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wanted to figure out what the limits of neighborly love are. He wanted to see who exactly am I obligated to love and who can I let go by the wayside. This is what we call semantics, or it's what we call the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. Because the spirit of this law, love your neighbor as yourself, is that we are to love everybody as we ourselves desire to be loved, to care for everybody as we desire to be cared for. But this man is saying, well, if it's love my neighbor, then who is my neighbor? Because I want to know which ones are my neighbor and which ones aren't so I can love my neighbor and I can forget about all those other guys. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it does make sense. If you've ever met a child, they're always testing the boundaries of exactly what you said. If you've ever parented children, right? But it's not just children. Because how many of you have figured out exactly how many miles over the speed limit you can go without getting pulled over by the police? I'm not pointing any fingers, uh, except at myself. So we all do this. We all seek to justify ourselves. We all seek to test the boundaries and the limits and see just how far we can go and get away with it. And that's what this gospel is about today. Just how far can we go? Or just how far can this lawyer go testing the boundaries of neighborly love? And sometimes we, like this lawyer, try to limit our love to only certain people, to only people in our extended family, or to only people in our local church congregation, or to only Christians more generally, or only our fellow Americans. But Jesus challenges us to loosen our limits on neighborly love and to make sure that we love all people as we seek to be loved ourselves. So let's look at this story itself. We have this man who's beaten up on the side of the road. He's in a remote place. When you go from Jerusalem to anywhere else, you're always going down to that other place because Jerusalem is up high. It's more than 2,000 feet in elevation and Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. So it's a, a pretty steep decline over 17 miles to get from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it's a pretty deserted path. When you went between major cities, in Israel in that day. It's like when you walk through country roads, even in America, there are some vast portions of America where if you drive out there, you're not gonna see another car for a long, long time. And you're not gonna see another gas station for a long, long time. So you better fill up before you start driving across the Grand Canyon because otherwise you're gonna run out of gas and there's gonna be no one to help you. That's what this road was like. It was a deserted place. And so this man, as he's walking down, has happened to him what often happens on deserted roads. He gets assaulted by robbers. 
Robbers taking advantage of the situation. They beat him up, they steal his stuff, and they leave him half dead. And then two men come down the road, one at a time. One is a priest, someone who offers sacrifices in the temple, and another is a Levite, who's not a priest, but is a part of Levi's family, and his job was to support the priests in the temple. He had a a temple role as well. And both of them, when they see this man on the side of the road, don't give him help, but they go around and pass by on the other side. And it's only the third man who comes along that finally gives this poor man some help. Can you imagine lying on the side of the road and seeing people come by and they just go right by? No help. You're bleeding. You're half dead. You need food. You need care. And people are just passing by you. But this third man, who is a Samaritan, stops and gives this man compassion, as it says in the Gospel of Luke. He gets off of his donkey and he puts this poor man on his own donkey. And he walks the rest of the way carrying the sick man on the donkey and takes him to an inn and he pays for all of his expenses at the inn and tells the innkeeper, I will pay anything more for your care when I return. He has tremendous compassion for this man. He goes above and beyond the call of duty. But the fact that this man was Samaritan is significant because the Samaritans were a group of people kind of similar to the Jews. They worshiped the same God as the Jews, but they worshiped God on a different mountain. The Jews worshiped where the temple was in Jerusalem. The Samaritans were kind of outcasts from the Jews. They had a a family divide long, long ago in the history, and they worshiped God in a different temple on Mount Gerizim, quite a distance from Jerusalem. And there was a tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. They thought they were a lesser group of people. And so when Jesus points out that it's this Samaritan who offers compassion, he's flipping the the story on its head. He's saying, which of these men was a neighbor to the man in need? And the lawyer can't even bring himself to say it was the Samaritan. He says instead, the one who showed mercy to the other. What he's showing us is that everyone is our neighbor, that no one is outside the limits of this law. No one is outside of this obligation to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, why don't these priests and Levites stop? Why don't they offer help? Well, maybe it had to do with their temple service. They had to stay ritually clean so that they could offer sacrifices or do the things that they needed to in the temple. They'd have to go through special rites of purification if they got, uh, if they got unclean by touching a dead body or by contaminating themselves with blood. So maybe that was what was going through their heads. Maybe they, they had to get to the temple and so they didn't want to become unclean. Or maybe they might have been thinking that it, it might cost me something. You know, I have limited resources and I can't help everyone. It might cost me something if I stop and help this person. Or they might be saying, I I don't know what to do. I'm not qualified to help. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a paramedic. I don't know how to care for someone with this kind of injuries. It would be better if somebody else took care of this. Or maybe they're thinking it might be risky. This man was attacked by robbers, obviously. I don't want to get attacked by robbers. Maybe if I stop and help this man, I'll get attacked by robbers too. Or maybe he was thinking, I just don't want to get involved. It's, it's going to be too messy. I might get dirty. He's bloody and he's dirty. He's sweaty. I might get dirty touching this man. Or 
I don't want to get involved socially because I might find myself obliged to this man in ways that I don't want to be obliged or in ways I don't want to be involved in this man's life. I don't know who this is. Or maybe they just felt they were too busy. I have places to go, and it would take too much time to stop and help. Now, some of these concerns might be valid concerns some of the time. We do have limited resources. We only have a certain number of hours in the day. We only have a certain amount of money in our bank accounts. So some of these concerns are valid concerns sometimes. And we can probably identify with one or more of them. But if you're always passing by on the other side of the road, like the priest, maybe you have a heart problem that needs to be addressed. One of the truths that we receive from the Bible is that all of us are broken. All of us have a sinful nature. All of us are turned away from the the truth of the gospel and the truth that we need to love God and love our neighbor. And all of us are bent in the direction of sin. And because of that, we're all selfish. That's our natural disposition, is to be selfish, to look out for ourselves first, and to take care of others, maybe if we have time and if we feel like it. That's our natural disposition. But part of walking in the steps of Jesus is becoming more like Jesus. And what Paul tells us in the letter to the Philippians is that we need to become like Jesus in his desire to sacrifice himself and serve others. So in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, Paul says this. I'm sorry, beginning at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And it goes on to talk about how Jesus sacrificed in the incarnation by taking on human flesh and sacrificed ultimately on the cross, giving up his life for our life so that we might be reconciled to God. And then finally, he takes his place seated at the right hand of God. This is a model of service. And Jesus himself said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. We're all naturally selfish and we have to make intentional choices to follow Jesus' example, to peel our fingers away from ourselves and stretch them outwards towards the others around us. So how do we live this out? The love of neighbor is an overarching principle that touches every aspect of our everyday lives. So we can start with public policy, the way that we vote and the way that we deal with large social issues in our society. And there's some big hot-button issues that are always on every single presidential race, every single political race. We're starting to hear about some of these things now as people gear up for their political campaigns. So things like abortion. How do we apply this Good Samaritan principle to the issue of abortion? Well, in abortion, there are two neighbors to deal with. There's the unborn child, but there's also the mother who's carrying that child. And we need to make sure that we're addressing both of their needs, the needs of that child to have life 
But also, if we're asking that mother to carry that child to full term, how are we going to make sure that her needs are met? To make sure that she has the resources to be able to carry that baby healthfully to full term. And to make healthy decisions about what to do with that child, whether to keep it or to give it up for adoption. These are concerns that we need to apply this Good Samaritan principle to because there are real needs that need to be met. Or think about the immigration and refugee crisis that's going on around the world. People are flooding out of certain Islamic nations, flooding into Europe primarily, and they're overwhelmed. The refugee camps are bursting at the seams, and it's being harder and harder to convince countries to take these refugees in. There are real needs. There are people who are living in tents. There are people who are going without food. What can we do to help? What can our nation do to help? Or think about health care and poverty. People who can't afford health insurance and they use the emergency room for their primary care and they rack up ridiculous amounts of health bills that they have no way to pay. How can we help someone in that situation? I don't know what the answers are, but is there something that we can do as good Samaritans to help? But let's talk a little bit more personally. What about when you meet someone who's homeless on the side of the road or as you're walking down the sidewalk and they ask you to help them? What can you do for them? I was in Baltimore a few years ago walking with a group of friends, Christian friends, uh, and we were on our way to a particular destination. We had a place to go to. We had a schedule to keep. And we found a homeless person on the side of the road. And one of my friends turned aside and told the rest of our group to go on ahead. And he stopped into a sandwich shop with this homeless person and bought a sandwich for him. That was a good thing to do. It's not always wise to give homeless people cash money directly. But that was a wonderful way to take care of this man's need on the side of the road. In the book of James, he has some challenging words for us. He says, chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? If we see people with great needs and we don't do anything to help them or to address their needs, if we just say, oh, well, I'll pray for you, what good is that? Does that meet that person's need? It, it does not. So what can we do to help someone who's in extreme poverty? Or people whose cars have broken down on the side of the road? What can we do to help someone in that situation? Or people who need help with moving? or with loading and unloading furniture, moving things from one place to another. When I worked at the seminary, uh, we had an email list that everyone on the campus, student, faculty, staff, everybody had access to, and we could send email to that and would send it out to everybody. It was called Campus News. And this Campus News, sometimes it was announcements, and other times it was needs that people in the community had, and they were looking for other people to help them. Maybe they had an appliance that had broken down and they needed someone who could help them fix it. Maybe they were moving to the seminary or from the seminary and they needed help loading or unloading their truck. And over and over and over again, people from the seminary community would flood to this person, whoever it was, whatever their need, and they would take care of that. And I myself and my family was a recipient of those benefits from time to time. But how often was I the one who went and met the need? 
How often was I the one who went and loaded the truck or unloaded the truck? Maybe not as often as it should have been. There are opportunities around us all the time to help people in need. Finally, people who need any kind of help, even if they're not asking for that help, is the Holy Spirit prompting you to offer help? Too often we ask, what can't I do in this situation? And so we make up excuses for reasons not to get involved. I don't have time. I don't have money. I don't have resources. I don't want to get involved. But instead of saying, what can't I do? Maybe we should ask, what can I do? You might not be able to meet the totality of whatever need is there, but is there something you can do in that situation? You all have blessed me with a discretionary fund that I use for helping people when they come to the church and are looking for help with electric bills or with light bills, or that's an electric bill, with water bills, with car bills, with all kinds of issues that they have, medical bills, and they come to the church asking for help. And too often, these needs are so great that there's no way that I could meet it. If I did, it would wipe out my discretionary fund every time, and I'd need 20 times the discretionary funds to be able to help these people. But instead of saying, what can't I do? I can't pay a $500 electric bill. I'm sorry. What can I do? Well, I can, I can pay a portion of that electric bill. I can pay for a tank of gas for your car. I can offer you food from the abundance of our food pantry. There's always things I can do. And so instead of of turning people aside, I try to find something I can do for them instead of just figuring out what I can't do for them. It might not meet the whole need, but at least it takes care of something. We all have limits. We all have boundaries. We all have responsibilities. You only have so much money in your monthly budget. And you have financial obligations that you have to meet. You have a mortgage payment or a rent payment. You have insurance payments. You have taxes. You have gas to put in your car and food to put on your table. You have real financial needs, just like other people do. You only have 24 hours in the day and you have other real commitments, appointments you have to get to, friends that you have to meet, things that you have to take care of. Those are real obligations in your life. And you have relationships that you need to tend to, like your marriage and your children and your grandchildren and your parents and your close friends. Those are real needs as well. And I'm not saying that you need to neglect your family to take care of the needs of strangers. In fact, you shouldn't neglect your family. There are too many people who do just that, neglect their family to take care of the needs of strangers. But we need to find some kind of a balance in our lives that allows us to do both. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, which we read today, It says this, verse 11 and following. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend for us and bring it to us so that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us to bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. These commandments are not intended to be overly burdensome. They're not intended to be so hard that they're impossible for us to keep. They're intended to be easy for us, things that we can, in fact, do. But they're also not supposed to be so easy that it costs us nothing. 
that it doesn't require us to give something. And we should love our neighbors in a way that costs us something, in a way that's a stretch for us, and yet also in a way that doesn't burn us out. It's good to know your boundaries and to maintain them. Jesus is not asking you to be a doormat. But what can we do? There was a seminary study done at Princeton uh, Seminary in the 1970s. And in this study, they were trying to look at this good Samaritan principle by studying seminarians. And so they asked uh, the seminarians questions about their faith, and they had a, a simulated situation that the seminarians didn't know about. And so after they asked them all these questions in the one building, they had a task they had to, to complete. They had to go give a talk in another building. And half of them had to give a talk actually on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And others had to give a talk on something else. And they were all given varying amounts of time that they had to get to the other building. And then when they walked out of the first building, on their way to the other building, they had placed someone in an alley who was lying on the ground and moaning and coughing and clearly in need. There was no way to miss this person. And some of the seminarians, they turned a blind eye and they passed by on the other side of the road, just like the, the priest and the Levite. And some of them stopped to help, but they didn't have time to get involved and they passed on. And others actually stopped and, and helped in some real and substantial way. And so when, at the end of the study, they compared the results of all these different students and the statistics, what they found was that there was no real difference in the beliefs of the seminarians that motivated them to help or not to help. There was no real difference between the seminarians who were giving a talk on the Good Samaritan versus the ones who were giving a talk on something else. The thing that made the most difference was the people who were pressed for time versus the people who had more time. The people who were told they were in a rush and they had to get to the, the next talk because they were late versus the people who had a little bit of margin to get from here to there. That was the thing that made the biggest difference in whether these seminarians stopped and helped or not. And I think that's true for us too. How often have I passed by someone on the road needing help because I was late for an appointment and had to get there. I didn't have time to stop. And so one real practical thing we can do about that is seek to create margin in our lives for the purpose of helping others in need. We can set aside money in our budget or our savings account for the purpose of helping people when needs arise. Unexpected help. Things that we couldn't have planned for. We can focus on trying not to schedule our time so tightly that we don't have time for others. And we can create care packages that you can give to people who are homeless when you see them on the side of the road. So that instead of giving them cash money, you can give them a bag that has granola bars and toothpaste and deodorant and soap and things that they can really truly need. These are things that all of us could do. And it would help us to defeat the temptation to be too busy or to be worried about the money or to be worried about our other obligations. If we create the margin in our lives with eyes to see what's going on, then we'll be able to help far more often. It can seem overwhelming to love everybody equally. The needs of this world sometimes seem insurmountable. There's always more that we could do. 
There's always more resources that we could pour on a situation. There's always more that we could do to help somebody in need. There's a woman named Baroness Caroline Cox, who is a, in the House of Parliament. She's part of the House of Lords in England. And she was given this position, and when she received the position, she decided she wanted to use that position for something good. And so she set up a foundation that allowed her to travel all over the world and to basically drop by helicopter into war zones and places where people are being oppressed so she can tell their story to the world, specifically to the House of Parliament that can try and do something about it. And so she becomes an advocate to these people in need. And when she makes presentations, which she does both in Parliament as well as in, uh, in lots of different situations all over the place, people can leave her presentations feeling a heavy burden on their shoulders because she brings them face to face with people in deep needs, deep needs of hunger, deep needs of poverty, deep needs of war and peace and shelter. And so we all sit there and we say, well, what, what can I do? There's nothing I can do to help someone in Afghanistan. There's nothing I can do to help someone halfway across the world. And so she always ends her presentation with the same thing. She says, remember, I cannot do everything, but I must not do nothing. I cannot do everything, but I must not do nothing. So instead of looking around and saying, what can't I do? Let's ask, what can I do? What difference can I make? And more importantly, what difference is God calling me to make? Listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit and going in the direction he calls us to go. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he was willing to leave the glory of heaven and take on human flesh and even suffer and die upon the cross so that we might be reconciled to you. Help us to follow in his path, to follow in his footsteps. Help us to seek not to be served, but to serve and to give of our lives for the sake of others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.